0: to episode 319 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Nathan Smith. Michael O'Malley. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be kicking off our Horror for Kids series to celebrate October with uh, 1939's The Wizard of Oz and 1985's Return to Oz, which... um, uh, We haven't really even had the recording yet, but I'm just going to say, like i totally understand if you guys just want to jump to that part because i feel like it's going to be a good one there's a lot to say about both movies so
1: um yeah
0: we'll dig into it but let's go ahead and let's do
1: we're off to see the wizard you know we're off to see <laughs> the, the movie, wizard, the the cinema wizard
0: well i'm nathan i'm gonna kick it off with you we'll uh we'll start part one you've um you've been diving into uh to the recent work i guess you could say of oliver stone so uh Tell us a little bit about your journey.
1: Yeah, you know, recently I have been getting a little stoned, enjoying the films of Oliver Stone, who i had not really until a couple of months ago been super super familiar with his work i mean i had by fact of reputation i had seen w like when it came out um i'd seen both wall street movies for some reason and um i think that was about it um but uh, i gotta give
0: i like that one of your point of references was uh was w
1: <laughs> yeah i watched it with my parents i think like you know we rented it being good democrats and i thought it was a hoot i think i was like oh that condoleezza rice impression sure was funny uh, <laughs> but i would honestly i would honestly be interested to revisit it now being a little bit more familiar with oliver stone
2: yeah i was kind of curious just, like because his late work is not really well regarded like my consensus i was I know you're about to talk about documentaries
1: no definitely like I I mean what kind of ignited my interest in Stone was watching Snowden um, which I've got to give credit to my friends Graham and JR for recommending that to me they watched it and you know nobody really saw that movie when it came out I think most of the people who did didn't really care for it Um, and it had a really hard time getting made like you know obviously being about Edward Snowden it was a topic that a lot of American producers and investors didn't really want to touch so he had to get like like European financing and kind of cobbled the movie together so that movie uh really took me by surprise I mean I think the criticism that Stone gets a lot it is that he's like can be very corny um I'm hitting record again sorry um <laughs> But, like, so Stone gets, I don't know, criticized, I think, for being, like, very um, on the nose about things sometimes and also having sometimes kind of views that are maybe a little bit outside of, like, mainstream uh, Culture, you know, sort of mainstream American political discourse, like in the case of something like JFK. Um, And he's a kind of committed, principled man of the left, you know, like I don't think he would call himself a socialist or communist, but he's definitely like not a liberal, you know, I think he's like beyond the left, uh, you know, into the left, because his sort of whole project as a filmmaker is like anti-imperialism and really calling out the sort of accepted narratives around how the U.S. has behaved internationally since World War II and sort of um, trying to expose really the project of American empire and its sort of destructive reign over the over the, over the whole world uh, over the last especially 50, 60, 70 years. Um, so the two things that I want to particularly highlight and kind of recommend are two kind of cinematic projects, but both docu-series, um, 2013's The Untold History of the United States and 2017's The Putin Interviews. Um, Untold History of the United States is a, like, 12-part historical miniseries, um, you know, sort of documentary, basically recounting the history of the United States, from World War II up until the, the second Obama administration term. Um, and basically, you know, it's a sort of kind of Howard's in like expose of all the things that were sort of covered up, all the sort of, uh, you know, not the uh, sort of debunking the official narrative, um, singling out sort of uh, figures like Henry Wallace, sort of populist leftist figures who have been sort of erased from kind of popular memory um also sort of focusing a lot on cia operations and various wars and and conflicts that you, the united states has been involved in and been the aggressor and you know uh, uh, just dealing a lot with the cold war um it's i think particularly strong and particularly interesting when it comes to talking about world war ii um I think Stone is very sort of committed to giving the Soviets their due in defeating Hitler and really honors kind of the immense, immense sacrifice of the Soviet people uh, in their struggle against Hitler. Um, And he sort of he's incredibly hard on Harry Truman. And, you know, I think something that doesn't get thought a lot about is is uh sort of American atrocities that were particularly committed against the Japanese during world war II, um, And that's what this series is a lot about is sort of reckoning a lot with that legacy and reckoning with the legacy of the atomic bomb. And it really, really sort of hits you with just like how insane in paradigm shifting of a decision, like dropping the atomic bomb was, and how unnecessary it was, it really kind of drives home those sort of things. Um, and I think that, you know. Uh, unsurprisingly, given that Stone uh, served in Vietnam, the Vietnam episode is also, like, one of the best things that he has ever done. I think it's it's both a really thorough examination of the war and the pushback and resistance to the war, uh, but it also kind of connects Vietnam to other uh, American <laughs> interventions uh, like in Chile, um, and it also connects the legacy of Vietnam to sort of more contemporary politics and, and examines its legacy in terms of foreign policy and it's sort of just like how it has been systematically written out of uh, the American political consciousness and how you know it's not something that's really emphasized or accurately taught in schools um, or in a lot of curriculums and so I don't know you know the Untold History of the United States might be a little dry for some people Um, it is like I think kind of the platonic ideal of like what you would watch in an American history class and like a just and fair world where we really learned about our history Um, but I think it's honestly my favorite thing that Oliver Stone has done it's just like an immense work of history and it examines all of these through lines and threads that you see in all of his movies from Salvador to JFK to Nixon, you know, this sort of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, sort of really examining the destructive legacy of the American military industrial complex. Basically. Um, it's available on Netflix at 12 parts, I think with like two bonus episodes about world war one and the twenties. Um, but that sort of leads me into the second uh, Oliver Stone docuseries that I watched recently, which is The Putin Interviews from 2017. Uh, Stone has done a series of interview films with various political leaders. He's done a couple of documentaries with Castro. He did one with Hugo Chavez um, and other South American leaders. Uh, and he has a sort of very distinctive interview style. He's sort of like he, – he, he doesn't really try to divide – interviewer and subject. You know, you clearly see in the frame Oliver Stone asking a question and whoever responding. You see all the notes, you see the various, you know, crew members and sort of the liaisons and the sort of people, you know, the political you know, as uh, uh, you know, the people helping out or whatever, who are working for Castro or Putin or whoever he's talking to, you know, you kind of see the whole operation going on. Um, and, but it's also really interesting because it kind of gets sort of intimate, you know, there's just sort of like walking around just like two dudes hanging out with each other, even though there are all these other people around. Um, I think that just, I don't know, just by fault of Oliver Stone's sort of generosity when it comes to states that have been <laughs> persecuted by, by America... Um, he really sort of listens to these leaders in a way that I think other journalists wouldn't so of course the Putin interview is coming out when it did in 2017 um, right after the election of Donald Trump and after sort of the whole Russiagate thing exploded Oliver Stone was really gone after in the American press Um, there was an interview with Stephen Colbert where Stephen Colbert was like oh this you were talking to this oppressive leader and you just let him off the hook and you didn't you know push back on him at all and everybody in the audience Audience was sort of heckling stone and and jeering him and stone was sort of saying like well like why why don't you want like to taunt with Russia why do you still want this essentially Cold War conflict with Russia which is basically the subject of the Putin interviews and it was very telling I think that Stephen Colbert had not even seen the full documentary he had just seen clips from it and he was trying to call out stone about it but um, basically the subject of you know it's four hours long it's a Showtime miniseries so you can find streaming on Showtime. Um, but it's it's sort of a, a compilation of a variety of sit-downs that they had from 2015 to 2017, addressing a variety of topics, um, you know, about Russia's, uh, sort of the situation in the Ukraine, um, the situation in Chechnya, in Georgia, the sort of expansion of NATO after the Cold War. Um, and then it, there are a few... Uh, hours of interviews, uh, that they conducted in 2017. So it even gets into the sort of allegations of, of Russian hacking and, um, Russian meddling in the U S elections. And, you know, Putin is obviously, you know, not a good guy, you know, he's an intensely conservative and repressive leader. Um, but I do think there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of propaganda in the United States. Um, so I think it is very worthwhile to get this sort of straight up perspective and whether you want to take Putin at face value, whether you want to believe anything, of what he says or, or throw it all out. Like, I think it is worthwhile to sort of listen to this stuff and to get this other perspective. And I think it's. You know, obviously, like Stone had to build a relationship with this guy to get this kind of access. So I like, you know, I can't fault him for not sort of pointing and putting his finger in every sore issue. You know, like this took a series of years to sort of create this whole project and and to make it happen. So, you know, he's a journalist. He, you know, he, he can't or he's trying to be a journalist, at least, you know, like there's only so many buttons I think that you can push. Um, But I also think it's really worthwhile because it lays out this sort of history of post-Cold War, post-Soviet Union, American aggression against Russia and like, you know. Yes, there's, uh, you know, Russia is is meddling and interfering in, in, uh, around the world to, to various degrees. Um, but you really get the, the sense from this docuseries, you know, just like that their operation is a tenth, if that, of what the United States has and of what the United States spends on defense every year. Um, and you really see this kind of, late, this picture laid out very clearly of the United States saying for 30 years now, the Cold War is over. The Cold War is over. We're friends. We're partners. We're allies. But then Stone and Putin in their conversations kind of lay out the like actual history, which is that, well, you know, the United States has continued to expand NATO, continued to add new countries to NATO If there's no Warsaw Pact, if there's no Cold War, then why does NATO need to exist anymore? Why do we need to keep expanding um, military infrastructure around Russia? Why do we need to keep being the aggressor in that way? And so, yeah, you know, Putin has also been aggressive, but I think it really sort of lays out this message, which is very true and very important, I think, even if it's unpopular, that, you know, the United States has still been extremely, extremely aggressive in its foreign policy. um, And that that's something that needs to change and I think that's why a lot of people don't like Oliver Stone because he is sort of talking about these issues that are not very popular from a perspective that's not very popular Um, but I, I find a lot of value I think in something like the Putin interviews because um It's just like, you know, we forget about foreign policy a lot of the times. I mean, obviously things are very, very dire in our country and need fixing, but a lot of that is because we have done so much damage around the world. And I think that what I like about Oliver Stone is just like he's sort of taking stock of all of that and and really lets that sink in. That just like The defense capacity of the United States and how insane that military infrastructure is, how insane it is, how much we spend every year on arms and defense against who, you know, like against all of these countries that their capabilities and defense spending added up is not anywhere close to ours. Um, And so I think that, again, like. You don't have to like Putin. I don't think anybody really likes Putin except for the people who like Putin. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, Stone raises some pretty interesting questions. And so I I definitely highly recommend both of these. Uh, Whether or not you've you've seen his movies, whether or not. You know, you're a, a, a you, you like documentaries or not. I don't know. I think this is like this stuff has me excited about like history and like <laughs> global relations. <laughs> so
0: cool. No, I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I, it, it's, not, yeah, it's not it's not like a lot. it's not it's like, you know, there's going to be it's not like. Vladimir Putin is going to open up and, like, talk to a lot of people. Um, You know, it's... You could, exactly. You know, it's... You could be like, well, this sh- shouldn't have been Oliver Stone. You're like, yeah, but, like, he had this expansive conversation with Oliver Stone. He's not going to have an expansive conversation with any, like, uh, national U.S. media member. Like, he's not going to get on Anderson Cooper, you know? So, um I think it's still like exactly there's a like
1: I don't know it's very interesting just the sort of like the credibility that Oliver Stone has for these leaders because he's like an artist you know because he's not a journalist because he's sort of through his fiction and narrative and dramatic work he sort of proved that he has this sort of outsider perspective in this this kind of different view of things from a lot of Americans um And so I think he has, you know, for somebody like Castro or Chavez or Putin, you know, I think maybe they trust him because they know that he's he's very generous in like his perspective in, well, and then he's not um, going to ask
0: the it, same questions they've heard over and over yeah. again from Americans, you know,
1: like, yeah, totally. And he, and he, he's a, a very thorough researcher. I mean, you can, even if you don't like JFK, you can tell like how much research and how much like detail and information kind of went into that movie. So, you know, that like, he's also really bringing it when it, when it comes to an interview and that he really knows what he's talking about.
0: Absolutely. Um, cool. Um, Michael, you had, uh, you started the, the Katsi trilogy, but <laughs> I guess we're going to watch the, or talk about the the first two. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. I got the whole box set from the library and it was my goal to watch all three. And I still have that box set, but I just haven't watched, uh, the third one. So, uh, for people who don't know, um, the Katsi trilogy is a tr- trilogy of like experimental documentaries that, are all scored by Philip Glass and all directed by, um, Godfrey Reggio. Is that how you say his name? Um, but anyway, like, they all have a similar style in that it's like a, a mon- the whole movie is like a montage of images that are like, it's like pan-national images of either like natural imagery or like mechanized imagery of like industry or like urban slash like just human life, um. And so the first one is the most famous one. It's Skatsi, um, which um, is really good. Um, and it had me really excited for this trilogy because um, it's kind of awesome. Um, so it's like, I mean, if you really want to get into it, like the word like Koyaanisqatsi is like this appropriated like Hopi uh, word, which means like the unbalanced life and the whole kind of thesis of the movie which has no like voiceover or any like text explanatory text except at the very end um, when it kind of defines the word and gives like a little proverb from the Hopi people um, but the basic like idea is to show like the natural world juxtaposed with like industrialization um, and like the kind of project of the 20th century and so you get like at the beginning of the movie all these like shots of like nature and animals and stuff and some of it's like slow motion and some of it's like uh time lapse and some of it's just like within regular time uh and then like slowly you start seeing like human intervention and in all of these things so like uh bulldozers you know you get like shots of bulldozers like digging stuff and like eventually you get this whole um sequence that's just of like uh urban life where you have uh like really famously like this is like the famous part of Scotsi, is like. Um, these like time lapse uh, uh, shots of like city streets and stuff, where you just have like cars whizzing by and basically just becoming solid lines as they like go down the street because it's all in like time lapse and stuff, um, and uh, it's it's really cool. And I mean, it's got like the you know its whole like thesis um, about. Um, you know, industrialization, it ends kind of, like, you know, in a downer because, of course, like, the 20th century is, like, the single most destructive century of all time, you know? Like, it is, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, 20th century sucks. Um, but, like, uh, <laughs> this movie really does, like, a balance of, like, showing, like, why, like... Of course, like, showing the beauty and serenity of, like, the natural world that like, gets, like, totally demolished. Um, but then also showing, like, why industrialization is, like, appealing. Like, that... The mid-movie sequence um, set uh, to, like, all the urban stuff is, like, legitimately exciting. And, like, you can get, like... There's a sort of, like, utopian modernist bent to, like, that one sequence of the movie. Before This is mostly good. I mean, the images are great. Like, it is, like, really arresting imagery. But, like, the the reason why... Like, the glue that holds it all together is this, like, incredible uh, Philip Glass, like, score, which... Um, I had heard before like quite a bit, you know, it's like really famous music, uh, you know, it's like this and like, there's like a couple other things that are like the Philip Glass uh, compositions and like the Klonoskatsi score is up there. And so it's just like this legitimately exhilarating um, film that's like these like images rushing at you with this like incredible uh, score. And it's, um, it's like produced by um, like the production company is like American Zotrope um you know which is like uh, coppola and george lucas's uh thing and like it kind of fits like so this movie was released in 1982 and it kind of fits like their whole like sensory project of like the 70s like both those guys which is you know really kind of maximalist style and stuff like it kind of feels like you know the the experimental documentary version of like star wars or something um in the sense of like it just being like this like incredibly sensor like sensual melding of like a completely incredible imagery with like uh, this really ins- inspiring and arresting score, um, and so like Konstantin is really good, also really famous and probably a lot of people have seen it. Uh, in fact, in like when it was released in 1982 or 1983, whenever that was, it made like over three million dollars at the box office, which is wild to me that like. A, a documentary, but be like an experimental documentary with like no dialogue or, or spoken words or anything like that, like was, it was kind of a hit. Um, uh, but it's really, really awesome. Like, I guess I understand why people would like that. Um, the, so the second movie I watched, and I didn't get to the third one, but the second movie is called, uh, Pawakatsi, um, which is also a Hopi word. Um, and it means like the, Life in transition, or like Wikipedia also says, it could mean the parasitic way of life. Um, and this is kind of a movie about like colonialism in a way. Um, the entire like every everything in the movie, all the shots come from um, like you know basically like quote unquote the third world, right? Um, so you know uh, South Asia and, and Africa and, and things like that. Um, and like like uh Katsy, there's no like spoken dialogue or anything, but. Unlike Konoscopy, this is almost entirely focused on people. So you see a lot of um, people working um, or just going about their lives and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, eventually, you kind of see like the Western like world and like Western like styles of urbanization and stuff like kind of creep in. And uh, you know the the implica- or the idea and implication I think is like you have these workers who are working, and eventually their work is like corrupted by like the exploitative forces of like imperialism and colonialism and stuff um and this movie is not nearly as good as like it's still good in parts um and it still has like some really great sequences um and it's it's more ambitious with like the way it cuts and like the kinds of shots that it has like it's more interested in like double exposures and and fades and stuff in really interesting ways than, like, Kuala which is, like, more or less, like, a straightforward montage, and this is more, uh, pushing the format a little bit, but it's also, like, A, the images aren't nearly as cool or interesting, and B, the Philip Glass score is just fine, like, it's not great, and since those are like, the two main things I loved about the first one, this one, um, does not, did not hit me as hard, um, and also, like, I, I don't know, like, I understand, and I appreciate, like, the, the focus on, like, uh, you know, um, developing nations or nations that have been exploited by Western capitalism and stuff. But there's also kind of like, a, I don't know, what's, what's the word? Like uh, like an exoticism to how some of these images work in the movie that I think was like not entirely, I don't know. It, it, feels, it feels at times like a kind of tourist version of the, the places it's depicting, um, which maybe works against like the overall... Um, you know, ethos of of what the movie's trying to do of like to to work against like Westward uh, intervention and that sort of thing. Um, So like, I don't know, I had some mixed feelings about some of that. But then also some of those shots are really good and really interesting. Um, I guess it just doesn't feel as lived in. It definitely feels like that they're not made by someone who lives there. Whereas in the Quiana Scotzi you get these really interesting... Um, like kind of niche things, like there's a montage of like video games being played in like an arcade or something like that, and there's nothing so, like lived in or or like well observed as that in in It's it's all kind of like really, um, de specified and 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 not not extremely detailed looks at like um, how you know people in the countries where this is filmed lived, and so I don't think even though it's like more specific in its um subject matter it's not as specific in its like engagement with that subject matter um although there is some really cool stuff like so there's like like one shot of like slow motion these people like basically like beating grain to like separate the the husk from the the kernel of 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 wheat and that looks like extremely cool uh, and there's a lot of really cool imagery too but um it just the whole package doesn't quite come together as well um and uh the like I said the score maybe it's just it's not as iconic um but it it just didn't it it wasn't as stirring or interesting as the Philip Glass score from the um first movie um I've been told by Nathan prior to recording that the third movie is is uh, hot garbage so we'll see I guess this is one of those like kind of downward trajectory trilogies but I'm gonna watch the third one eventually and maybe get something out of it maybe not I don't know we'll see <laughs>
0: yeah nice um, Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we will be back to talk about the Wizard of Oz and Return to Oz after this so stick with us
3: Hey, Cinematary listeners, Andrew here. During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cinematary does want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com cemetery Cinematary, where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month, in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us. And we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary, send us an email, uh, z a c h at cinematary.com, leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cinematary has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free, you listen to and read them for free, and the only people getting paid are like, apple and google which is depressing so if you appreciate what we do if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com slash cinematary and chipping in five dollars a month we would truly appreciate it thanks for listening now let's get back to the show
0: back with part two of episode 319 of Cinematary, and in this part we'll be kicking off our Horror for Kids series with 1939's The Wizard of Oz and 1985's Return to Oz, but we're going to talk about The Wizard of Oz first, uh, directed by Victor Fleming, from a script by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolf. the film stars Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bulger, uh, Burt Lair, Jack Haley, and Margaret Hamilton. When a tornado rips through Kansas, Dorothy and her dog Toto are whisked away in their house to the magical land of Oz. They follow the yellow brick road towards the Emerald City to meet the wizard, and yeah, you know what this movie's about. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on. The film was based on one of the most popular children's books ever written, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which uh, Life Magazine noted in an article about the film, differed from most other, quote, fables, in that it contained, number one, a modern U.S. heroine, and number two, the absence of anything really horrifying, or any really horrifying ogres, monstrosities, or, be- or bewitchments, which we can get into because... Because I none don't of know that. Is. About yeah, that. I've read
2: that book. It's got some weird. It's got a witch. How is there not a witchman?
0: I don't know. And also it's 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 a kind of terrifying movie, so whatever. Um after the success of Paramount's Alice in Wonderland, MGM became interested in producing a film based on the wonderful Wizard of Oz and was considering it as a starring vehicle for Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. However, by the end of September 1933, Samuel Goldwyn purchased the screen and book rights for $40,000, the vehicle for Eddie Cantor. Uh, in September 1933, W.C. Fields was reported to be considered for the role of the wizard and that Helen Hayes or Mary Pickford would play Dorothy. In June 1934, it was reported that Samuel Goldwyn had dropped plans to produce the film in that that year's schedule, uh, with a news item noting that Cantor refused to consider it, stating that the story was, quote, not his type. Inners jumped, uh, jumped up again after the ex- uh, success of Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Filming for The Wizard of Oz started in October 13th uh, of 1938 on the MGM lot in Culver City, with Richard Thorpe as the director, replacing the original director, Norman to- uh, Torog, who filmed a few early Technicolor tests and then re- was reassigned. Thorpe initially shot about two weeks of footage, nine days in total, involving Dorothy's first encounter with the Scarecrow, as well as a number of sequences in the Wicked Witch's castle, such as Dorothy's Rescue, which, though unreleased, includes the only footage of Buddy Ebsen's Tin Man. Thorpe was then replaced by George Kukor, who was then replaced by Victor Fleming, who then was unable to finish the movie because he had to go do Gone with the Wind, so King Vidor filmed a, f- a few scenes to end the production, including the Over the Rainbow sequence, as well as many of the scenes that take place in Kansas. Actress Margaret Hamilton played the Wicked Witch of the West and was depicted as an old hag. In reality, Hamilton was only 36 years old at the time, while her on-screen nemesis, the younger-looking and prettier, Glinda the Good Witch of the North, played by Billy Burke, was 54. The Wicked Witch's makeup was toxic, so Hamilton lived on a liquid diet to avoid accidental ingestion. Her face stayed green for weeks after shooting finished due to the copper-based ingredients, and many of the scenes featuring the Wicked Witch had to be cut or edited because she was considered too frightening for children. Uh, there were Also, there were 3,210 costumes created for this movie, which... Blew my mind. I I could honestly go, we could sit here for you know 50 minutes and I could read off facts about The Wizard of Oz, including just how shitty this production was to all of these actors. But you know, we have other stuff to do. Um, The New York Times in 1939 said it is all so well intentioned, so genial, and so gay that any reviewer who would look down his nose at the fun making should be spanked and sent off supperless to bed. I can only imagine what Vincent Canby was smoking that night. (laughs) Um, Variety in 1939 said There's an audience for Oz wherever there's a projection machine and a screen L. Frank Baum's story is an American fa- fairy tale a nursery saga of nearly 40 years it comes to the films already tested as a fine piece of theatrical property older the- theater goers remembered the musical comedy version in which Dave uh, Dave Montgomery, Fred Stone, and Anna Laughlin played for several years up and down across the land. It's a mixture of childish fantasy and adult satire and humor of a kind that never seems to grow old. Um, So on that note, let's jump into The Wizard of Oz, which, I don't know, next to like The Godfather... Gone with the wind, like it's just a weighty, movie. like there's a lot, you know, in it, like it's a loaded movie. There's a lot involved, you know, involved in it. It's, it's, it's. Our, we're already not doing it justice, really, because we're doing it as a as a double feature, and we're gonna cut this in half. But at the same time, I, I don't think I sat and like I don't know about you all. I haven't sat and watched this from like beginning to end and in, in a long, long, long time. Um, and I was really, you know. It, it, it does get lauded like as you know one of the most watched movies of all time and as just this you know undisputed classic but there is some really like um just awe-inspiring pieces in it that you know at least like part of me is like yeah this is incredible and then part of me is like this is so strange i can't believe that this is the most watched movie of all time um but but uh, what about you all nathan what, what did you uh what is your history i
1: guess with the wizard of oz I mean, I think that this is one of those movies that I've it's it's up there, like maybe top five most seen <laughs> movies. Uh, when I was growing up, my older sister was like really obsessed with it. And she's had sort of a lifelong obsession with The Wizard of Oz. Like she even wrote her college thesis about uh, the Elfrink bomb books. So it was just like, you know, a, a constant videotape that was just always playing and so it's just like burned into my mind i feel like um and i you know i don't know it is it's uh kind of a technical marvel a really you know fascinating beautiful production design um It's very interesting how the production history is like so unstable and, you know, there's like no clear tour behind it. And nevertheless, it's still kind of like one of those Hollywood masterpieces that I do think really lives up to the reputation and the iconic status. Um, But there is something about it that's very strange, you know, like you're hinting at. and. You know, the reason why we're talking about it for this kid's horror series is because I think it's this movie that so many people have seen, but so many people have also been kind of scarred and terrified by. And, you know, I don't really remember, like, ever being that scared of it actually I think you know a lot of kids are like freaked out by the witch and the flying monkeys and I think I just got inoculated eventually just because I saw it so many times even though I was like really scared of like every movie as a kid like you know just things that were like in retrospect were not scary at all I was terrified of in a lot of movies so you think I would have been freaked out by this more um, but I think what honestly maybe like what did kind of scare me about it was sort of everything around the movie Um, because you know you mentioned a lot of the like kind of horrific production history like all the stuff with the witch and the skit and the the paint and i think she even caught on fire at one point and like buddy epson was like suffocating from the tin man paint and then there's the whole sort of urban legend about like the the extras who like hung themselves in the background
0: yeah it's allegedly Um, like one of the munchkins had hung himself and like you can see it in the background but (laughs)
2: It's just, yeah, you know, which yeah. is
1: which is uh, you know not true, but uh, it's still there's like this just kind of like something strange, kind of you know this whole sort of troubled air around this movie, um, and just a lot of things about like. The, the source material itself and even the movie um but it is kind of like lends itself to horror just i think the the like relationship to the human body as something that can be like dismembered and reconfigured and mutated you know like the tin man is his whole origin story is is like terrifying like you know he cut his yeah. leg off yeah.
2: i'm glad to return to oz brings it back into the yeah
1: and it's just like the the books are messed up and like have this kind of grotesquerie to them and i think it it you know it's maybe a little bit more muted in the wizard of oz but uh it's still it's still there it's still it's still a weird thing.
2: There's also like the scarecrow who like multiple times in the movie just gets basically disemboweled, um, which is another yeah. like, great like body horror thing.
0: Well, I definitely want to come back to the whole body horror aspect in Return to Oz, which includes one of the characters like coming to life because they were cobbled together with whatever they could find in the room to escape. And like that's it's like in like the sentientness of like that whole character, we get we could talk about that in the in the second part of this, uh, especially. But um, Michael, I, I I saw your your letterbox review, and so as, as somebody who um, clearly enjoys the
2: Wizard of Oz a lot, I mean, what um, what is your history with the movie? Yeah, I mean, I think this movie is just like great, like, uh, and I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. It's one of those things, like, I just always remember it. Have, I remember always remember having known the wizard of oz like and I remember we never had the vhs or anything like that but i remember watching it on tv a lot um or maybe renting it from like a video store or something um like when i was really young like i remember there were definitely like moments where i remember i don't know if i knew it was going to be on tv because of a commercial or something i don't remember but i remember being outside and like rushing inside cuz i knew like i have to watch the wizard of oz it's on it's coming on tv and things like that so i've like I don't know it's like a really formative movie for me um and I just think it's like just incredible like it's just like it's it's a movie that's been alluded to and like referenced and imitated so many times but it's still like there's something like just strange and uncanny and like arresting about like the film um and I think like it goes beyond like just the the content of the film like the plot or whatever which is weird and kind of dreamlike and nightmarish in ways but like the actual like there's something so intense about like the colors and the mu- like the swelling music or whatever like it feels like what like Carnival of Souls is going for or it feels like David Lynch at times like like and I know that this movie is like like an explicit influence on both of those things but it like hits that where it's like this Americana like recognizable Americana that's like justified like or um juxtaposed with these just like like, some of the most intense, like, primal, like, uh, just aesthetic moves of all time. Like, just the, like, the the specific shade of yellow that the Yellow Brick Road is, it's just, like, burned into my brain. Like, it's just, like, a this particular color where the the actual set and the, the, you know, the background paintings that they're, like, in front of, like, they just become, like, one. And it's just, like, very it's just very intense in a way that is like really delightful, but I think is also like a contributing factor to why it's like so frightening to people sometimes is that it's just like a movie that is just like every way that the movie inputs itself into your brain is just like turned up so much. Um, I forgot, I, I had watched it. I hadn't watched it probably in like 10 years maybe. And I re- rewatched it the other day and, um, I forgot how much music is in this movie. Like, I remembered all the songs as they were happening. But, like, you know, contemporary musicals have, like, 10 songs or something like that. But I think there's, like, 20 songs in this movie or something. Like, there's just constant input of, like, like, uh, just music and new musical ideas and new visual ideas. Or, like, just, like, it's just, like, going for broke with, like, overwhelming you with stuff. Like, there's just, like, a two-minute scene, maybe two minutes, maybe less, where a tree comes to life and then it's gone and you never see that tree again. And it's just like one of these things where it is like throwing so much stuff at you. And I think that that works for like the cinematic style too. Um, And I don't know. I I just think it's just a completely compelling, like endlessly fascinating movie, just even on its own, like like divorced from the context. And I have like always loved this movie and I still do. I think it's just great.
1: I think, you know, like you, it's very interesting bringing up just the musicality of the movie because I think that's one of the like really interesting things about this is that it's like a pure movie musical in a way that like really, I mean, I guess singing in the rain is kind of like it in the the way that like, I think that this or but Wizard of Oz is even beyond that because I feel like Wizard of Oz is one of the few musicals that's like transcended the movie musical genre you know like it's it's a something that's beloved by people who aren't musical fans. Um, I don't think people think of like The Wizard of Oz like first as a musical. I think they just think of it as like a piece as like a just a movie, as like this iconic movie. They don't think of like that's a musical. You know, there's not like a stage version of The Wizard of Oz that's as famous or on the level of the movie. It's not like an adaptation of, a, you know, of a stage musical in that way. It's like, you know, all original songs written for the movie. So it's just this like shining kind of definitive product of the Hollywood system in that way. Uh, but also something I think kind of like very unique in American pop culture. It's just like pure cinematic spectacle in a way that few things are. And I mean, I think that's why it, like it functions as a horror movie too, because it just like embodies all of these different genres. You know, there's, it's a fantasy, there's elements of science fiction, almost, you know, the, the opening black and white parts are this sort of like <laughs> depression, realist, like, humanist drama, almost. Um, and it's got, you know, the horror to it as well. And also the brightly colored musical stuff. It's just kind of like all things at once. Somehow it's really, it's really, bonkers honestly
2: i think it's going back to what you were saying about the musical elements of it like i think it's interesting zach that you mentioned that the uh disney's snow white and the seven dwarves was like a inspirational um uh, you know predecessor to it um in the production because i think that like this feels a lot more like a live action version of like what a disney you know animated musical was like compared to like what we're used to with like live action musicals in which like there's like this melding of like special effects and choreography and color in a way that it feels different than like singing in the rain or like, you know, a a more conventional musical because like the, it does this thing where the, the music doesn't feel like the characters are stepping out of their world to like inhabit like the musical space, which is sometimes like the effect of a musical where you have like the plot kind of going along and then they kind of shift gears into like music. But like this one and I think Snow White works the same way and like you know maybe you know some other early Disney musicals where the music is so incorporated and so like integral to like every element of the movie that the songs themselves are less set pieces and more like just a logical extension of like the 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 feel of the world itself.
1: I mean, in some ways, it's almost sorry to interrupt you, Zach, just a real quick thought. I feel like in some ways, it's almost like (laughs) one of the closest things that America has to like a Bollywood movie and that it's like, you know, Bollywood movies like aren't musicals. They are musicals, but it's not like a it's not like a a genre. It's just like that's how all movies are. And I feel like The Wizard of Oz is almost like kind of that same thing.
0: Yeah, no. And I think that kind of adds to what I was going to say is. This kind of, uh, you know, we're going to get to Return to Oz in, in a second, but at the same time, like, it, that's what kind of made that movie, uh, like, watching it for the first time the other day so effective. Because, noth- like, The Wizard of Oz does not feel like it's t- not not only, like... Um, Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's something from like this world. It also like in, within the movie, it does not feel like it, like it's just completely like in this whole other, like ethereal space somewhere else. Like there, it's just such an absurd, um, thing. And that's why like at the beginning, I was like, it makes no sense to me like that. This is the most watched movie of all time, because I think if you want, if you, you know, I'm thinking of, of you know similarities to stuff now if you had if this movie came out in like 2020 it would nobody would go and see it just because um i think it would be too like like the the concept would be too strange i mean it would end up like you know things like uh a, 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 like a lita Battle Angel, and these other like kind of high concept, <laughs> uh, like incredibly creative, but also
1: Valerian,
0: yeah, like, but it would, I think, it would end up like that, just because, I mean. You have this. She pops from Kansas to just this terrifying hellscape of like the Munchkin village, where these just you know these people are just like screaming and screeching and singing at her for for fifteen minutes. Then she kills a witch. Then she has another witch come come in, and then, and then another witch, which she who she also kills. I mean, Dorothy comes through this and kills two people. And then leaves, Um, and so I love that. Like, like this, like the Wizard of Oz is such an absurd movie, and then Return to Oz is completely like, like throwing vinegar in your face and like reality um like that like I love that that's like the like the the you know the connection between these two um the one part I did want to mention before we did move on is um and Michael I think you uh were talking about this I think in in your letterbox review but he, even today I mean this was you know made you know what 80 90 or so years ago the the scene where she opens that door and it goes from like the the Siphia like Kansas to the Technicolor of Oz is fucking incredible. Like that
2: is such good cinema. <laughs> it's like a very strong contender for like the greatest shot in American movie history. I yeah. Think. Like is so good and I don't there I don't know, there's just something about that. And and also like it opens up on that scene and like it's also like consciously like waxy and stagey as well. Like I mean you can tell that the Kansas scenes are on a sound stage. But they're not, like, meant to – they're kind of meant to be, like, you know, we're in Kansas. You know, this is, like – I don't know. They're meant to evoke something real. And then she opens that door, and not only does it burst into color, but it's so, like, artificial looking. Like, it it looks like um, – you know, it looks like a constructed reality because it is, but it, like, isn't trying to hide it anymore. Like, it's like the movie completely giving over to its own artifice by, like – violating the like um the aesthetic of the original part of the movie and then kind of violating any sort of like claim to verisimilitude either um, and i just think it's so cool
0: yeah well and it, it just it, it, it's constantly like busting at the seams to like like it, for for being this um this movie that's like taking place in this fantastical world like you do feel the the, you know, the moviness of it, you know, I mean, there it's kind of, it's, it's, it's deep, it's deeply unfortunate that, like, you have all of these um, records of, like, the production history with just the costumes and the, and the, you know, there's the whole thing where, Judy Garland like had a laughing fit when she had to slap the lion, and then Victor Fleming like took her off on the side, slapped her, and then like put her into the take. Like you just hear these like horrific production, uh, you know, with with people like you know getting poisoned from the from the paint, you know, the makeup and such. Um, but then like, it, it, but then you also have like just these kind of like silly like what you can't do much else moments where. You know, it looks like at one point the Tin Man's leg, like, kind of looks like baggy pants. You know, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like metal. Like, it there's just like this artifice all over the place, and so it's kind of unfortunate that, I mean, they, you know, it, like I'm of two minds because like on one end, they they pushed you know the limits to, to make it as you know quote unquote realistic as they could, and clearly like tortured these people to a degree. Um, and it looks, and it, I mean, it, it it pays off. It looks stunning, but then also there's all these moments of like the facade kind of uh, cracking a little bit that are also just kind of wonderful. That, um, you know, engage you, you with just the fact that it's a movie at the end of the day.
2: And I think like that's also again like I think that that's part of like the uncanny feel of the movie, and like probably one thing that like keeps, like, someone like David Lynch returning to the well of this movie, you know, like, David Lynch's movies are, like, so full of, like, things that are kind of uncanny and beautiful and frightening because it's, like, a crack showing and, like, it's it doesn't care anymore about, like, like, quote-unquote, like, real, like, conventional movie real look, it, like, is willing to be, like, an, a complete act of artifice, um, you know, and, and kind of, like, I mean, David Lynch really, like, dives into, like, the, the weird um uncanniness like in a way that this movie doesn't but this movie that's like there, like bubbling right under the surface and i don't know i think there's something like a little bit upsetting about that like especially to kids um and i think like things like the witch and the flying monkey are probably frightening because like i mean they do look like people just trapped under these like really oppressive like visuals, and it's—I don't know—it's—it's it's unsettling in some ways.
1: Actually, I think this the scariest thing to me in this movie, as a kid, thinking back on it, were the uh, the guards, the the Oreo. Yes. What's <laughs> up with that song they dudes. sing? <laughs> yeah, I re- I would like sing that song constantly as a kid.
0: I also just love like the you have like the the various costume designs. You have like the in the Munchkin land, they have like this kind of European imperial uh, military look. And then you have like this almost like looks like the Huns when, when you go to the w- wicked witches uh, castle with her guards, they like, they, they look like they're, you know, like soldiers of Attila, the Hun. Um, it's just like this strange, it's just like this hodgepodge of so many different things. Um well, let's, let's shift to Return to Oz because this was just a, a damn treat to watch a day after Wizard of Oz. Um, so this came out in 1985. It was written and directed by Walter Murch. And uh, the film stars Faruza Balk, Nicole uh, Williamson, Gene Marsh, and Piper Laurie. And the film is an unofficial sequel to the 1939 MGM film, uh, and is based on L. Frank Baum's uh, Oz novels, mainly The Marvelous Land of Oz from 1904 and, o- and Ozma the, of Oz from 1907. In the plot, Dorothy returns to the Land of Oz to find it has been overthrown by the villainous Gnome King and must restore it with her new friends, TikTok, Jack Pumpkinhead, and Princess Ozma. Um... Oh the 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 deer he got he the the moose head or whatever he got uh, left out I forgot the what his mul- name was isn't he
2: like the mulch or something was the munch? yeah he
0: got left out of that poor guy um, in 1954 Walt Disney Productions bought the film rights to Baum's remaining Oz novels uh, to use in the TV series Disneyland this led to the live action film Rainbow Road to Oz which was never completed. Though MGM was not involved in the production, Disney had to pay a large fee to use the ruby slippers created for the 1939 film. Walter Murch began development of Return to Oz in 1980 during a brainstorming session with Walt Disney Productions production chief Tom Wilhite. Uh, Merch told Wilhite that he was interested in making an Oz film and Will Height, quote, sort of straightened up in his chair. Unbeknownst to Merch, Disney owned the rights to the Oz series and wanted to make a new film as the copyright was soon to expire. Five weeks in the production, Disney was unhappy with the footage and fired Merch. Filmmaker George Lucas convinced them to reinstate him after reviewing the footage and guaranteeing that he would step in as a replacement if any further problems emerged. Merch took a darker take on uh, Baum's source material than the 1939 adaptation which he knew starting out would be a gamble between the development period and actual shooting there was a change of leadership at the, at the Walt Disney Studios and the film's budget increased once the shooting began merch began to fall behind schedule and there were further pressure there was further pressure from the studio leading merch to uh, learning to merch being fired as director for a short period uh, high-profile filmmakers including uh, Lucas and uh, Francis Ford Coppola supported merch in discussions with the studio and merch was reinstated once again. Uh, Leo McCurran and Christopher Lloyd were even were each considered for the role of Dr. JB Worley, the or slash the Nome King before it eventually went to Nicole uh williamson and in 1984 the or 1985 the uh, variety said return to oz is an astonishingly sober or somber melancholy and sadly unengaging trip back to a fan- favorite land of almost every american's youth straight dramatic telling of little dorothy's second voyage to this emerald city employs an amusement park full of imaginative imaginative characters and special effects but a heaviness of tone and absence of narrative drive uh, prevent the flights of fancy from getting off the ground and in 1985 the LA Times said home and return to Oz comes with no sense of security at all and when Dorothy get, does get back there's so little between her and Auntie M that what we want her aunt's admission of what an awful mistake she made abandoning her precious child to evil hands never comes that may indeed be a reflection of the times in which the film, this film was uh, has been made but it's not what you could call comforting um they're not wrong there it's a very uncomfortable movie but i kind of loved it so like like i mentioned at the top um there's something so because you just have this it's just pure like unadulterated genuine fantasy fable in in wizard of oz like it's just we talk it's like it's all artifice it's just it's all even 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 like the quote evil of it is like kind of rosy. And then Return to Oz, I loved because it's like just the beginning of it because it's just. Where she's taken
2: to electroshock therapy? Yeah, it's just like, (laughs) no,
0: you just have a mental disorder. What are you talking about, Oz? Um, (laughs) Yeah. and th- and then it proceeds to just strip the just strip like the 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 rosy you know the rosy colored glasses off of the entire experience and show that you know this is probably the true experience that we're dealing with that that the 1939 Judy Garland film is just um, you know <laughs> uh, fable you know shot up to 110 and like this is probably the reality of like these characters in this place that she visited um and i loved every second of that i thought that was so inspired um what did you all what did did you all make of return to oz um michael what was your thoughts
2: i liked it a lot i had never seen it before i knew its reputation um and i guess like nathan's sister i was a pretty big oz fan growing up and read a bunch of the books i didn't read all of them because there's like a ton of books like l frank Baum wrote but like i think this movie if i'm remembering right it's like the first two sequels to oz are basically the basis for this movie um and zach that thing you're talking about with like coming back to oz and it being all destroyed or or weird and grotesque is like 100 from the books like that's like a recurring thing that happens in the books is like dorothy comes back from kansas to oz and finds like oz in some like weird state um and she has to, like, figure out what's going on um, and stuff. And so I really, really dug, like, just the how this movie just... I, I don't know. Like, as a fan of the books, it was really fun to see that happen. And, I mean, like, the characters look like the illustrations in the books and stuff, which I think is a really fun touch. Um, but also, like, I mean, it, it's just great, like, how just completely demented this movie is. And I think in ways that are in some ways different from the books, like... Um, just the the style of the movie and how like all the the weird like stop intrusion of like stop motion and stuff into the movies um, or into the movie I think is really interesting like the gnome king quote unquote um, when he shows up he's just like this like CG or not CG um, stop motion character um, who like emerges from the rocks and like he has like spies throughout the movie who like will just like the rocks will be like stop motion uh, footage just like form eyes that watch them in the background and stuff And it just, they
0: all, the, the the rock spies also perform the greatest line in cinematic history which is what about the chicken and the rock spy goes there's no sign of the
2: chicken <laughs> yeah the, the cracking wise chicken who doesn't want to go back to Kansas because Kansas sucks <laughs> god yeah it's, it's so funny how this
1: movie is like okay here's a taste of Toto and then it's like fuck Toto <laughs> You get a chicken instead. <laughs> There's this is asshole chicken who doesn't the want to go back like to Kansas. Is the chicken
2: like animatronic or what is, What's what was, I couldn't quite tell what was going on with the chicken as far as like a production object. To
0: be fair, I think I checked my phone at one point, put my phone down, and the chicken was there <laughs> and like annoying us. And I was like, "All right, this." Um, Nathan, what did you make of Return to Oz?
1: So i had been wanting to see this for a really long time um, because of its Lucas and Coppola association, just because I've been obsessed with those two dudes for a really long time. And, you know, Walter Murch was uh, a big affiliate of theirs, uh, editor of Apocalypse Now and um, Coppola's late films, and really, you know, did some innovative sound work for... Um, The Conversation and American Graffiti. And so I was always kind of interested, you know, that like the one movie he directed uh, was this (laughs) Disney movie, this sort of strangely regarded sequel to The Wizard of Oz. Um, But I just never gotten around to seeing it. Um, And, you know, it's when you think about it. It's sort of, in, in some way, kind of makes sense why somebody like Walter Murch would be interested in The Wizard of Oz. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, uh, <laughs> you know, I think Star Wars is one of the few things that's culturally, like, on the level of The Wizard of Oz, one of the few movies that's reached that status. And so, obviously, there's that sort of association. Um, but, I mean, The Wizard of Oz is considered such a, like technical benchmark and sort of landmark in film. I mean, obviously not, you know, the first color movie, but it's just that shot, that sequence, is just, like, such a potent historical metaphor, I think, to, like, the transition and arrival of of color in, in Hollywood. Uh, and so... You know, this is a guy who is at the forefront of a lot of technological innovation, both in sound and in editing. Um, I I can't remember the exact specifics of it. But he's like the only person to be nominated for editing Oscars on like four different editing platforms. Um, So he's been somebody who, you know, back in the day cut and spliced film with hands and has been kind of at the forefront of innovations and non-linear editing and digital editing. Um, so you know this was obviously like a big special effects movie too so i think that kind of like wanting to return to hollywood's roots to sort of showcase new technology i think is something that you see a lot throughout the history of like special effects cinema in hollywood you know they always want to like go back to like silent cinema or the early days and sort of revisit those genres or styles or stories to sort of say like hey you know like we're just returning to roots you know like these were movies uh, uh, that were visual spectacles, and we're just doing the same thing. We we're just reviving that tradition. Uh, so it's 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 a weird choice, you know. It's an unexpected choice, but I think that Walter Murch makes a fascinating movie by like really you know leaning into like the the wackiness that the special effects of the 1980s allow but also returning to like the roots of the source material Um, you know I actually read one of the two sequels that this is based on Ozma of Oz a couple years ago in a grad class which was about science fiction and like the origins of science fiction literature and the professor wanted us to sort of consider like the TikTok character and you know as like one of the kind of first literary automatons. Um, And so, uh, you know, he was asking us to consider like how this book, which is sort of maybe more fantasy than science fiction, sort of has elements of it. And I think you can see the same thing with like horror, obviously, as we've been talking about, Um, where there's this just like, I think in a lot of horror movies, you see things that are very commonplace They're sort of made to be strange, whether it's like the nuclear family or like a child, like in Rosemary's Baby or The Omen or something like that, where it's taking something that's like such a part of life and making it terrifying and and unnatural. I think that like, you know, a lot of times that happens with the body, too, in horror movies where the body is made into this like object of revulsion and and disgust and that like in some way uh, Oz does that, too. And Return to Oz really hammers that home you know you were getting into it a little bit earlier Michael but um just like you know everything with like the the heads of uh the the witch and all the decapitation in this movie um and that they you know mention again with the tin man with how he his body is just chopped to bits and replaced with tin um and TikTok is just like constantly failing you know he's constantly having to be wound up and his body is constantly doing him a disservice i don't know just like the whole thing like you know i think l frank Baum was very much a product of like the industrial revolution um which was both a society with changing machines but also sort of changing relationship to the body with that and i think you see that sort of reflected and captured and returned to oz maybe even more than the original
2: I think there's a lot of, like, interesting stuff in the book that, like, makes its... Or in the books that makes its way there. Because, like, in, for instance, the original Wizard of Oz book, like, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, there's a lot more body stuff that makes it into the movie. So, like, they traverse and find, like, this um, town where everyone's made out of porcelain. And so the characters are, like, constantly breaking and having to glue themselves back together and stuff. Um, And then, like, in a later book that's, like, not represented by either of these movies, they, like, go underground and find this, like... World of vegetable people, and like there's this one part where, like, there's like a sword fight, and the one of the vegetable people gets like cut in half, and they have to plant his two halves of his body, so and they'll each grow into like another vegetable person. And like, I think that that's like a consistent thing in these movies, and in the like just the just like a consistent part of the Land of Oz um ethic, um, or the Land of Oz like style is its ability to do weird stuff with anthropomorphization and so some of that is like the technological stuff and then the other of it is just like there's a weird element of like things given human characteristics that shouldn't or, or that don't usually like there's like Jack Pumpkinhead who's just like sticks <laughs> with the pumpkin on top um, and he's like a, this weird like puppetry creature in the movie and his who's m- had his body like
0: you know, torn apart by the witch because that's what Dorothy has to like help him with.
2: Right. Exactly. And then you've got like the, um, I mean, I can't remember what it's called, but the thing where they, they put the taxidermy deer head on the couch. Um, and I mean that they have like a, there's like a magical powder that they get from the witch that literally does the thing where it like gives like sentience to things that are unliving. And I think that that's like core to like the ethos of like the world of the wizard of Oz is that things that wouldn't normally have life or have life in the way that they're depicted have it, and so like this this story like kind of literalizes that with the magical powder. But even in the original movie, you've got like the scarecrow and the Tin Man and like um, the the flying monkeys and, and stuff like things things have a weird like human quality to them that doesn't feel like how we're used to the human body being portrayed. Um, And I think that that's, like, central to, like, both of these movies. And then this movie, like, just, like, ratchets that weirdness up a lot by, like, delving into some of the weird stuff that's in the books. Um like that powder
0: the moose character also i mean he has like a whole thing where he he like gains consciousness and is like what am i and dorothy's like i don't know you're a thing like that's like (laughs) that's like the literal line that she's like you're a thing and he's like okay it's like he has no he doesn't like know what his purpose is he just was like tossed into this world and is now having to like um, decide his purpose in life, which I think is just...
2: Well, and he flies apart at multiple parts in the movie and they have to, like, put him back together. He's called the Gump, by the way. I just looked it up.
1: And, he, they're, you know, they try to reattach the couch and he's like, no, I don't want a body. <laughs> like, what <laughs> the fuck? Like, you guys just, like, I'm just ahead now. Like, let me embrace that. Um, also, can we just talk about the wheelers? Like, you know, I feel like there is some... Like, in that, there is some, like... A intense fear or maybe on the part of l frank bomb that like humans and automobiles are gonna like fuse together or something
0: <laughs> well they were like such they were such terrifying characters when they like appear too because they had the the like mask things that are like on the back of their head or the top of their head or whatever um and those start appearing and they're like these these like like terrifying um almost like totem like 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 pagan totem things that seem like they're like attacking her um mixed with you know i don't know like some 80s some 80s hangout or something. I don't know. It's such a strange combo.
1: Yeah, I mean, they kind of look like... They kind of look like uh, Culture Club or something, but they also have, like, some sort of, like, new metal vibes, you know? They have, like, weird dreadlocks almost.
2: It felt like Thunderdome, like like uh, the third Mad Max movie they could have been in. Oh, abs- now that you
0: say that, yeah, no, they absolutely feel like somebody out of a Mad Max movie. Um, yeah, those are, those are just such strange... Because, again... Like, you're back in Oz, and it's so... Uh, like, the, the, the whole initial return is, is great because she gets there, and, like, you see the house, but then instead of, like, the bright and shining, like, gold uh, munchkin land, it's just, like, this decrepit forest. And then she gets to the Emerald City, and it's just, like, you know, in these ruins... Um, because, you know, there's also like this element of, you know, this again, this is like something being imagined uh, in her head. And so whenever she's like disengaged from it, it's just like everything, everything like shuts off uh, to a degree. And so that's what's like the, the interim between the you know 1939 movies story and this one just, you know, like, in that interim, she's, like, everything has just been kind of, it's just, like, everything fell to the wayside because the, you know, the computer, the CPU was unplugged for for that period of time, which is just such a nice element to it.
2: One of the things, like, about the return that I think is, like, really interesting, it's, like, a weird little detail that um, is, like, the, the Gnome King's, like, monologue or, like, whatever, where he's kind of, like, giving all his grievances and why he's the villain and stuff, and he mentions that, like, he took all the emeralds out of the Emerald City because they had been taken from him because they were in the ground. And they belonged to him, and I think that that's just such a weird and interesting thing. And I don't remember if that's a detail from the book, but it kind of feels like in the spirit of the book, where you're constantly finding out these new kingdoms or peoples or whatever that have been existing like under, like under the like like each each successive trip to Oz like peels back more layers of like. Oz is more than just the Yellow Brick Road and like the Wizard and and the Emerald City. Like there's this like increasing like sense of like this wide world out there. And with the wide world, you get these weird like political tensions um, that show up. And like that's like a nod to that in this movie is is just that. And the the Nome King like tunnels under the desert, which um, and and like steals all the or 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 takes back all the. precious gems and I I don't know there's just that that that's just weird and, and it's kind of scary and upsetting and also just kind of fascinating like when you think about like all the like the gem imagery in the original like with the 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 Emerald City and then she has like ruby slippers and things like that and the the Gnome King has the ruby slippers in this too and there's this weird sense of like this He's reclaimed what's his, and it, it like makes a weird, uncomfortable tension with the first movie in which this was all just like glitter and, and, and like really fun. And you find out it was like obtained via theft. And that I don't know, that, that, the movie doesn't go into it that much, but I think that that is part of like the movie's project, like you said, Zach, to just like completely throw vinegar in the face of like everything that was fun in the first movie, but do so in like a really interesting way. So it's like, wow, the first movie—the colors and imagery was so cool, and this this movie is kind of reckoning with the the fact of the the pain or the the like plunder that was required to accomplish that in the first movie. And I mean, that maybe even works on a meta level too, if you think about like the production of it of the first movie and like what we talked about, all the kind of abuses of the the production. Um, so I don't know. I think that that's just like a really interesting like thrown-off detail. In this movie, that is like kind of indicative of the whole project of the movie. Well,
0: and I like and I like that Return to Oz is not it's not dismissing anything. Like the like the fact that it, it completely it's embracing the like the original movie, but going yeah, that's great. But let's like let's look at it almost. It, it I mean it it's almost engaged in like this kind of much more traditional folktale where you think of like the traditional um, you know, original stories of like Cinderella and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and and Alice in Wonderland and all these things. Um, especially kind of the the like grim fairy tales and like Germanic uh folk tales um that just have like this really grotesque macabre core to it that that are just kind of terrifying and like like that's kind of like the true origins of those stories. But then you have like you, you like match like the the original Snow White fairy tale to the Disney movie. Um, and they're just like such stark contrast. So it's like, it's kind of like engaging with, with folklore on like that level. And that, that immediately appealed to me.
2: Yeah, it's super cool. And I think, um, you mentioned this already, Zach, but I think one of the really fascinating things about The Wizard of Oz is it comes, it comes at the really late, you um, or the the story originates in, like, the really late uh, Victorian era of England, which is kind of, like, the rise of, like, fantasy children's literature in general. And it's, like, distinctly an American version of that, which is something we don't really have a lot of. We don't have a lot of, like, that, like, wave of, like, children's fairy tales that that aren't, like, European inflected. Um, And I think that that's another interesting thing, too. with both of these movies, is that like the the kind of essential like Americana of of these movies and turning that into folklore, in a way that we don't see happen a lot. I mean,
1: both of these movies, you know, start off with uh, <laughs> the capitalist charlatans. You know, in the in, in the Wizard of Oz, it's you know a kind of snake oil salesman and. and and this one, it's uh, electroshock therapy. Uh, and just like, I don't know, that whole, that sort of like undercurrent of like the coming of electricity, I think is sort of an interesting kind of socio political dimension that this sequel has too.
2: Even in that scene at the beginning, he's like anthropomorphizing it too. Like the thing that's about to like shock her, he's like, look, it has a face. There's its eyes, there's its mouth, and its tongue. And I, th- that's just such a weird weird thing to be like hey kids don't worry this thing's safe because it has a face and that just feels like the the whole movie writ large is like it's okay kids it's just a movie and look there's faces on everything
0: um any any final thoughts on either of the movies before we uh we wrap up
2: is this on disney plus i like the idea of like some kid just it is actually That's what I watched nice. it on. <laughs> Kids, if you're listening, no, if you
0: if you have Disney Plus, I would recommend as like a nice, spooky, you know, October, just kind of a fun, uh, fun spooky movie. Um, watching Return to Oz because it's it's and just outside of what we talked about, I think just the like the mechanisms of it, like Michael mentioned before, you you have it, like it'll shift between like live action and stop motion and like almost puppetry with like the jack pumpkin head character like it's just it has like all of these different modes it's doing and it just has this like
2: that in itself
0: just isolates it into this whole other realm that is just uh it's just great
2: can you guys imagine like the quality control measures disney would have put on this in the contemporary age like
0: well, Walter Murch guess, would have been fu- like fired and and not fired. Yeah, re-hired.
2: yeah. I, you know,
1: there's nobody I think with the like clout <laughs> now to defend filmmakers in that way. You know, like I mean, it's it's interesting uh, that you were talking about the Quatsy movies in the first half, just because like George Lucas produced the second one of those around the same time that <laughs> he was defending Walter Murch uh, uh, with Return of, Return to Oz. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's really kind of crazy just thinking about like that that kind of power. I mean, I really don't think that that exists anymore, where this kind of thing could sneak through.
2: Yeah, or at least like the people who have that power aren't interested in. It. Like maybe Christopher Nolan could do that, but Christopher Nolan isn't going to make a movie like
0: this. Yeah, Christopher Nolan could do it. Like somebody like Ava DuVernay could do it. Um, but they're also like they have power, but they're also they're like the power is is still like within the system you know it's like they're not they're they're not doing it for their own sake they're 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 like we'll do it to like get this on netflix you know
2: right yeah and like disney at the time like mid-80s disney is like kind of the nadir of like disney as a cinematic brand like you know they're doing like black cauldron and and stuff and like they were kind of just like throwing yeah they were really trying right they were just like like throwing some shit out until like i guess mouse detective and little mermaid and stuff but Like, I feel like this, the 70s and 80s is the only time that, like, Walt Disney Studios could have been behind this movie.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And I love also, you know, we talk about, like, the, it changed five directors over the course of the original uh, Wizard of Oz. And they had, like, three writers. They also had, like, they did the whole old Hollywood thing where, like they made three writers write three different treatments and then brought them in. Like one of them was Herman Mankiewicz and Herman Mankiewicz like wrote a treatment of the wizard of Oz and brought it to him. And they like stole the little parts from it and moved it. You know, it was just like this whole, it was a whole studio system type thing. And I kind of like that return to Oz is just like Walter Merch going yet. Yeah, like, yeah, this is my shot. <laughs> like I'm going for it
1: well I think just one last thing is I think in some ways even though this is such a like anti-Disney Disney movie I also think in some way it kind of speaks to like where Disney would go because obviously The Wizard of Oz wasn't originally uh Disney property you know Wizard of Oz is not a Disney movie but as we've sort of seen recently with like you know the acquisition of Fox um, and the way that they like selectively added certain Fox titles to Disney Plus, you know, family friendly things like the sound of music, which they're essentially trying to like retcon in the cultural memory as basically a Disney movie, because it's sort of something that's like in line with their standard of family entertainment. And so I feel like in some ways, like this is almost something similar where it's like trying to expand their sort of universe of intellectual property and saying like you know the wizard of oz is the kind of stuff we're trying to make you know that is what a disney movie should be and sort of trying to claim the wizard of oz as part of the disney brand
2: it is kind of interesting too i mean i know we're about to end but like one of the kind of disney things with ip is them taking the things that are in the public domain and kind of branding them disney so like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or whatever, those are all, like, public domain stories from, like, you know, 150 or 200 years ago. Um, but they're so tied to Disney now. And just just in the past, like, was it, like, 10 or 15 years, the Wizard of Oz entered the public domain, like the books did. Um, and that's, like, an interesting thing, that, like, the Wizard of Oz as a cultural object is so intensely tied to the MGM movie. Um, and it's maybe, like, one of the only things... Um, like that that's not a disney product where like something in the public domain is so tied to like a specific studio intellectual property object um and it would be weird and depressing if it like you know just got subsumed into the disney empire
0: well don't give them ideas (laughs) disney if you're listening (laughs) don't do that um Alright, well that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary where we list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Next week we will be um, oh hold on and our Patreon patreon.com slash thank you to our patrons uh, Cam Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry Cindy Roberts Harry Eskin Hell Yes Small World Joe Jordan Maggie Ron Hayes The Kittiest of Kittens Titus Arthur Tyler Chandler and Whitney Rhea Ross thank you so much for your patronage next week we'll be continuing our Horror for Kids series with 1988's Beetlejuice which uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty fun riot um, it's a strange movie to you know uh, launch Michael Keaton into being Batman from, but you know it is what we—it is what it is. I um, in Tim Burton too. Tim Burton <laughs> as well. So next week, Beetlejuice. But until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you then.